breathe. Let the music, let it, let it breathe. Been a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's good to be back here at uh, Theology and Mission Lectureship. I mean, no, Theology and Mission Podcast. Theology on Mission Podcast. We just finished our Theology get- and Mission Lectureship, annual lectureship. I can't get the conjunctions right on this. Theology and mission, theology on mission, theology and mission. Someone asked me a very profound question. They're like, how come the program is theology and mission, but then your podcast is theology on mission? Yeah, why is that? You're the one who comes up with this stuff. I think it's because someone else came up with the program description and I came up with the podcast title. Theology on mission is better, isn't it? It's not like you're taking two different things. I like things theology on mission. And putting yeah. them together. Yeah. It's, they're one thing interrelated. They are, not, they are integral. They are in- inseparable, integral. inextricable, folks. Anyways. Absolutely. So we just got through with the theology and mission lectureship. And who was here with this? Everybody Great. knows already, but. Yeah. The the esteemed professor of theology and ethics at Duke University, uh, Divinity School, actually emeritus, Stanley Harawas, how did you uh, experience Stanley? How did we had him here for two days? We had him here for the uh, first of all the class that we were teaching. Then we had him here for uh, Thursday night lecture, uh, Friday morning breakfast, which was outstanding as we're soon to hear, and then the Friday morning lecture. How did you uh, how did you feel about the whole thing? I thought he was great. Uh, he was compelling as ever, thought provoking. Got a bunch of oohs and ahs from the evangelical audience. He was. Uh, he was sure to tell everybody he knew nothing about evangelicals. Yes, but I, I argued with him a little bit on that. He knows more than he knows. Well, I said uh, you went forward when you were you were a kid at the age of 15 to rededicate your life. I don't think any other version of Christianity rededicates or dedicates your life to Christ. Uh, but he, he makes note of how he skipped the conversion. He never felt sincere enough to walk forward and get saved, so he dedicated his life to Christ. And why is that? Because he thinks the worst thing you could possibly have is what? A personal relationship with Jesus. Right. Now, we're going to get—maybe we should do a podcast on that and try to explain <laughs> what Stanley really means with that, but that's too thick and deep to uh, unwind here today. What we got here today is an, uh, a really great—I think a lot of people thought the highlight of the weekend— Absolutely. The, the highlight, the gold. was— was the breakfast time. We had 100 people in a room eating breakfast with Stanley Hauerwas. I was asking him questions. I would say a little more ministerial questions. Theology and mission is is bringing the best thinking, the best theologians, the theological minds to understand the impact of how we think about God, Christ, in, in the world, how he works, and how that impacts mission. Well, we had those kind of more academically driven lectures, although they're still practical, on Thursday night, Friday morning. But we had this breakfast, and a lot of people said it was the highlight of the whole uh, two days. I know we were just kind of making it up as we went along, but you set it up really well to ask him very specific ministry questions. What is the role of friendship in the pastorate? What is uh, what what is needed in training for pastors and things like that? And his responses were just profound and amazing. And so I think next year we'll do the same thing. Uh, who's soon, coming? soon Chan Ra is going to be with us giving and us we'll a we'll ask light. him practical questions for the lunch. You for sure don't want to miss it. And, and that there's one nothing is limited. More... So you got to sign up early. There's nothing. Well, you're not going to have a sign up this early. Not for yet. I'm just it's telling people. Yeah, but maybe there'll be someone out there will be listening to this podcast nine months from now. And then they'll oh, be I like, oh, yeah, that. I got to sign up. Yeah, well, Soon Chan is, is promised to deliver uh, some 
some insight into the issues of reconciliation, racial uh, tension, racial violence, racism in our culture, and how opening up the space for God to work in those things in our churches and in our neighborhoods actually is mission, actually opens up space for the proclamation of the gospel. So that's going to be next year, Theology and Mission Lectureship, Northern Seminary, probably around the very same time, June 8th, 9th, 10th, whatever it is, First that week. week of commencement. And uh, folks, we look forward to it again. But for now, we're going to uh, replay... Um, the tape or the recording or whatever you call it now of the breakfast time with Stanley Harawas Theology and Mission Lectureship Friday morning, I think it was June 9th. Here we go. Yep, and be sure to hang around till the end. Uh, Dave and I are going to jump back on and talk about a couple of things coming up and just sit down, relax. This, this podcast moves at a different pace, the pace of a relaxing breakfast. So unlike my usual banter and out, you know, rageous pace. Your usual banter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just relax and enjoy. All right, so... Um So first question for you, Stanley, you said, oh, and by the way, I've got like three or four questions, and then uh, I'm hoping that if you have a question, again, ministry-related, Christian life-related, uh, that somehow you're going to be able to give that question to us so we can all hear it. We're, we're, we're kind of limited with our amplification resources here, so we only got one mic. <clears throat> Anyways, Stanley, you said in, at the beginning of Hannah's Child, Hannah's Child is a book I highly recommend if you have not read it. How many have read it? Okay, we, we, we need to sell at least 100 more copies. Um, but anyways, uh, this is Stanley's autobiography, but it is not just an autobiography. It's a theological biography. What else could it be? Anyways, I highly recommend it. Um, Stanley, you said at the beginning of Hannah's Child, I did not intend to be Stanley Hauerwas. That, that phrase has helped me out a lot over the years. Ministry can be hard when you're doing it for accomplishment or when you're doing it for achievement or, or even identity. I don't know how many of you out there have had someone come up to you and say your, your preaching stinks. <laughs> and that ruined you for about a good week, if not a year. Of course, I had that happen to me every month. But, uh, Stanley, um, can you talk to us about um, what that means in terms of, I mean, some of, some of us need to understand ministry as a gift as opposed to an achievement. I, I'm very hesitant to make declarations about those that know it. I'm very hesitant to make declarations about ministry when I'm in a room of people who have to do it every day, and I don't. Um, and I think that the challenges facing the ministry today are profound, and how to prepare you for the life 
of ministry um, in seminaries, I think we're not doing a very good job with. I could be, I mean, one of the things I that I've noticed, I mean, I, I'm not ordained, but I've taught people who are going to be ordained for over 40 years, and I get to observe your lives. And one of the things that I've noted about the ministry is that um, is that you um, are bedeviled by the fact that your people don't know what your job is. And so, I mean, you turn out to be tingling masses of availability, which um, means before long you hate the people you're serving because their demands are unlimited. Uh, I mean, being in the ministry today is a little like being nibbled to death by ducks. <laughs> I mean, you, you get, you get a, uh, you, uh, I mean, she asks you to pick Johnny up after school, and she's the wife of the head of the board. You're not sure how picking Johnny up after school is part of your ordination vows, but, uh, you know, how, how do you negotiate these kinds of issues? Uh, I, uh, I think, therefore, that one of the most important things for you in the ministry is to help your people understand why it is that you need to spend an hour a day in meditative reading. Or you, you need to spend um, time um, working on your sermon because it's not your opinion, it's the word of God. And, and the church will die if you do not um, take that responsibility seriously. I mean, when, you, when people leave the church and say, that was a very interesting uh, sermon, but of course I didn't agree with it, you need to say, you should. It was the word of God. The, uh, so, and you earn the right to do that by being under the power of the text. Those are the kinds of, of um, interactions that I think are crucial for what it means to be in, um, in the ministry today. I, I often observe that the Methodist, Methodist ministry uh, isn't under threat because of ordination of gay people. The Methodist ministry is under threat because of adultery. And I wish I could attribute that to lust, but most Methodist ministers don't have that much energy. Uh, I, 
I, I, think, I think it's that the great problem in the, of, of the ministry is loneliness. And that the loneliness can try to be healed by the touch of another person, which oftentimes takes one in places one shouldn't go. So how to sustain in ministry friendships that give you a way to um, deal with the loneliness that comes from people not understanding why you're in the ministry in the first place. Because it's deep, I think. Um, and that that is the kind of developments that if we don't have friendships, I mean, I've discovered that for most Methodist ministers, they, their only friend is usually a clergy person in the town they're serving who is not Methodist. <laughs> because, of course, Methodist ministers only have one constituency. It's called the district superintendent. And uh, they, um, that's the only person that they have to relate to. The other, the other aspect of ministry that I think is so important is um, how you negotiate being part of crisis situations of a child has died Adultery has been discovered. Um, we're in financial ruin. Families are so ha uh, happy to have you present in those crisis situations. They want you to pray, and that's terrific. And then you discover after the crisis has somehow been resolved. They don't want any part of you because you remind them of pain they don't want to have to go through again. So part of the loneliness of the ministry is the alienation from people that you have cared for because they are not sure that they want you to know their vulnerabilities. It, am, I, am I speaking to what you experience? So, so all of this has to do with how you reclaim what the ministry is about, which is service to the people of God through the worship 
of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And I think that, therefore, how that is um, institutionalized is why it is that worship is the center of your community's life and of your life. Everything you do must gain its intelligibility from what you do every Sunday at the altar. And uh, that, I think, is um, crucial for people in the ministry to be able to be in the ministry for a lifetime. <laughs> because uh, uh, it's not just getting through this year, it's getting through a life. And uh, it, I think uh, the identity of you as being the one set aside to do for the church what the whole church requires you to do, that is, to preside at uh, the sacrifice of Christ, is what will sustain you uh, through um, the many tensions of what it means to be an ordained person. That's a long answer. Great. Um, my next question was actually about friendship in the ministry. Uh, maybe I should say friendship in the Christian life. This is an emphasis in your work, you know, and sometimes I think pastors need to be told instead of accomplishment, try making friends. Instead of um, trying to build a bigger church, uh, try building more friendships. I, I had an odd thing growing up. My My father was a pastor, and my mother would say, oh, you... Pastors can't be friends with people in the church, okay? And then, and then, but we did. We had four or five major families that were major friends that got us through a lot. What do you? What, do you have any comments about the importance of friendship for the Christian life? And then, what do you say to my mom who says, "Oh, pastors can't be friends with the church"? Well, I take it that what your mother is indicating is what she saw, and that the uh, and the problem, of course, is that. If you're friends of some people in the congregation, other people in the congregation will think you're giving your friends more pastoral service than you're giving them. Uh, and so um, friendship becomes politi politicized in a way that um, you, you have to be everyone's friends. I mean, uh, and no one can be everyone's friend. I mean, Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics says that you, um, uh, you can't have many friends because then if you have many friends, it just means you're psychologically a whore. Um, uh, uh, namely, that uh, there's nothing um, that uh, there's that you're, I mean, you're just friendly. Uh, you're just always available. 
I, 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 um, I say now that I'm among, uh, now that I'm among the Methodists, I have discovered that the Methodists have a conviction. It's that God is nice, and um, uh, there is a correlative. Since we're a sanctificationist tradition, we think we ought to be nice too. And that applies particularly to people in the ministry who have to spend their lives being pleasant. Uh, uh, what a terrible, um, uh, what a terrible thing to have to do that is to be pleasant for your whole life. Uh, I mean, can't, why, why can't you be angry? Uh, why can't you um, uh, have the intensity of a friendship that um, is not um, a friendship that you share with everyone. The, um, I think friendship is absolutely crucial for how you think of the upbuilding of the community. Um, Aristotle distinguished three kinds of friendship. Friendships of use, friendships of pleasure, and friendships of character. Uh, friendships of use is you're my friend because I need you to do carpentry around the house. And as soon as you, the use is over, you're not any longer needing them as a friend. Friendships of pleasure are um, the kinds of friendships that occur in, quote, the championship season, namely it's the friends that did well as a basketball team and are bound together through a winning season. And then as they grow older and come together, they relive the championship season and then discover they hate one another. They, um, uh, I, I mean, this is... Uh, that's friendship to pleasure. As soon as the, the pleasure is uh, uh, accomplished and then gone, you're no longer friends. Friendships of character are the kinds of friendships that are necessary for us to be able to acquire the virtues that make us trustworthy friends for a lifetime, and that one, you like to be together because you're able to see your friend's virtues as helping you understand what you ought to be. The question of uh, Aristotle says an interesting thing. He says you ought to be your own best friend. We tend to think, well, that sounds like egoism. For Aristotle, we have to be and should be the kind of people who have had a life lived in a manner that makes it possible for us to look over our life and be glad for who we are. So in order to be 
a character friend, we need to be a friend of ourselves. Let me recommend a book if you, um, uh, it's by James Rebanks. It's called A Shepherd's Life. Has anyone discovered it? It is a beautiful book about a shepherd um, in um, the fells of England who um, thought he hated education and just wanted to be his grandfather's, like his grandfather, a shepherd, farmer. But turned out he ended up getting a degree from Oxford and um, but he went but he continued re to remain a shepherd but he has a good sense of the kinds of challenges before us today and toward the uh, being a shepherd by the way is no easy life one of the things by reading this book you discover more about sheep than you thought you wanted to know uh, uh, particularly why it is you always have to look into their mouth. But toward the end of the book, uh, he is letting his sheep out into the fells again where they will roam uh, unimpeded. And he's lying on his back looking at the sky with his sheepdogs by him. And he says, this is my life. I want no other. How, I mean, that's that kind of claim. This is my life. I want no other. Is the kind of expression people have very hard times making in our time. So how to have that kind of life is crucial for, uh, for our ability to be friends with one another in the way that friendship is not a zero-sum game, but it makes each of our lives richer than they would be if we hadn't been friends. So friendship is, um, I think, absolutely crucial for the kind of training we need to be morally good people. Aristotle said, however, that friendships cannot take place between people who are unequal. And that, of course, is belied by Jean Vanier's friendship with the mentally handicapped and how to become and be the kind of person that is a friend of those who are not like me is part of the kind of call that I believe is constitutive of what it means to be part of Jesus' people. Because friendship between those who are handicapped and those that are not is 
a way to discover what it means for God to befriend us. And uh, that for God to befriend us expands the self in a way that makes possible a community of friends who otherwise would be so unlikely. So I think friendship is one of the most important uh, themes and practices that we have today uh, before um, uh, in the kinds of challenges that modernity produces. Are you all hearing back there okay? Okay. Put the mic just a little closer, they're asking. Uh, yesterday at uh, either breakfast or dinner, uh, you told a story about Alistair McIntyre. Uh, you said, uh, evidently you asked him, have you read this book? He said, no. You said, why? He said, and Alistair McIntyre is 89 years old. He said, I could die any time. I don't want to go with this, with the last book I read being a bad one. <laughs> what books or or let me put it this way. How do you choose the books you read? Because we got pastors here of all kinds who feel the need to read a lot of books but probably don't have a lot of time. And how do you read books? Do you, like, take notes or do you put them in a computer? Do you have a program that you use? How do, how do you uh, retain the value of the books you read? Um. I think recommend book, books I recommend, that I would recommend um, to read every year is Augustine's Confessions. I, I think that that is just a book that is so infinitely rich. You, um, it's, um, it's just irreplace, irreplaceable. I think McIntyre's After Virtue is a book that will be philosophically hard but extremely important uh, to be read. Um, I think um, John Howard Yoder's The Politics of Jesus is a, is a, is a book that changes everything you, you think. Um, I um, um, I don't know any any book that um, um, I would necessarily recommend about the ministry. There is a book that um, that is about the American Protestant ministry that I've always found extremely illumin illuminating. It's called The Damnation of Theron Ware by, um, 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 I'm suddenly blocking the name of, um, it's, it, he only wrote, he wrote several books, but it was the only book that it was any good. But it's, it's about, it's about how to be a Protestant pastor in America. Uh, uh, I want to say Ware, but I don't think that's right. 
Who is it? Yes, Frederick. Thank you. Have you read it? Oh, thank you. I, I, you, you, pe you people are so clever. Um, yeah. um, but as important as what you read is how you read. And um, reading um, is a habit, is, is a trained habit to let words take over your life. And um, there's um, one of my one of my collections, which of course no one has read, is called "Working with Words." The I'm I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Uh, I wondered where the fifty percent fifty cent royalty came from. <laughs> I, um, uh, but in working with words, um, I uh, I quote Yoder that. Theology is working with words in the light of faith. And I, I point out that that itself is misleading because it sounds like faith is something other than words. But reading is a way that we learn the grammar of the words that make the faith what makes us who we are because faith is not just believing in God with you know kind of crunching up and saying yes lots against it but I really believe in God no faith is more like faithfulness through which lives are shaped to be a witness to the God that shows up in Jesus Christ in a way that, as I was trying to say last night, makes us counter-cultural. The, um, therefore, it's very important that people in the ministry continue to read, and I know you get no credit from the congregation for being a reader. But you will, if you don't, if you don't read, continue to read, I think you will um, find um, particularly your ability to preach um, um, reduced. Um, I, um, and I mean, one of the great problems with uh, our current situation is um, I think people in the ministry are afraid of the people they're serving. And uh, how you um, take, uh, have courage to preach in a way that trust that God shows up in the word in a way that transforms the hearer, uh, and you're one of the hearers in the preaching of it, 
is um, absolutely crucial for the life of the church. Uh, the great enemy of Christianity today is not atheism. If only we could produce some interesting atheists. But since we're not terribly interesting believers, it's very hard to produce some interesting atheists. But the great enemy of Christianity today is sentimentality. And sentimentality is to be found as soon as a preacher says, as my 10-year-old daughter was, taking, was telling me the other day, you can, you, can, you can quit listening because you can be sure that the rest of it's going to be bullshit. Because what's being gestured is, isn't it wonderful? I have children, and they're just lovely, and you ought to like them too. Um, um, to be able to trust that God shows up and transforms the ear uh, because the, um, the sermon has been um, a, a argument that helps people understand what it is as Christians we must be in the world in which we find ourselves I think is uh, absolutely crucial for you and that that comes through reading um, and being um, um, and and letting the language wash us over um, at um, at the great um, Easter Mass at Holy Family. Uh, we read Chrysostom's sermon about how um, at the resurrection the uh, the devil was defeated, and it's I mean it's amazing uh, what you know um, how the congregation just loves the refrains. Uh, I think that um, uh, reading and preaching are so closely tied together that, uh, insofar as the grammar of what we say and how we say it is shaped by the classical text um, is crucial for you to be able to carry on across a lifetime because if you don't read um, across a whole life, you're going to be eaten up. Okay, last question. We're going to have a Q&A after the next lecture as well, by the way. So if you have a question, hold it. But um, in uh, Hannah's Child, you said this. If you are a Christian you have nothing to lose. 
So you might as well tell the truth. Um, pastors have to resist telling the truth in a coercive way, though. And when you say, if we have nothing to lose, I assume you're talking about the posture of being a minority people in a non-Christendom world. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, what does it look like for the pastor to be faithful in the age of Trump? How do we tell the truth without doing what they, whatever you want to define as they, what they're doing? Um, I, um, um, Wittgenstein says in Cultural Value that those that would tell the truth have to be at home in it. Isn't that a lovely um, um, way to put it? What does it mean to be at home in the truth? Um, it means to have lived one's life in a way that you do not have to hide from yourself or others what makes your life work. And that I, um, There's nothing is more destructive for um, for our ability to be at home in the truth than secrecy. And so you, we have to live lives that are open to um, other people asking us, how in the hell do we make sense of that? And um, we, we need to be able to tell them. Um, and therefore, um, I'm uh, next week, uh, don't be too impressed, but I'm getting an honorary degree from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and I'm giving the commencement address. And I, I start saying, commencement addresses are all pretty much the same. I congratulate you on your great achievement. You're going out either into a world that's dark or you're going out into a world that's filled with possibilities. But either way, you've been trained through what you've done here at Aberdeen to, um, uh, uh, to be a great success. And um, I mean, that's, that's the general structure of a commencement address. And I say that's the reason why no one can remember the one that they they got when they graduated, right? I mean, I've been probably to 45 commencements over my life, and I still can't remember one address <laughs> that I heard. Um, but I, so I say I'm going to give them a um, 
advice that I think they'll, they may forget, but I hope they'll remember. And my advice is don't lie. Just that simple. Now, that's very hard because um, it's not that we so intentionally lie. It is that our world is so filled with lies, they speak us before we know it. So how to be a people at home in the truth uh, is a great uh, challenge. And we, um, we, as we are a people who believe that when the one that we know to be truth was asked what is truth, remain silent because Jesus becomes for us the truth that moves the sun and the stars, which means that there is a world that can be trusted to be shaped by people who would rather be truthful than to die the lie. So um, I think that um, truth is the heart of the matter. I mean, when I gave a sermon um, a year or so ago at the Seminary of the Southwest, I, I was kind of the baccalaureate sermonizer for the Episcopal Church. I did Virginia, um, the Shota House, and then the Seminary of the Southwest in Austin. And at the Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, I said, I hope when you are ordained and have been a priest for 25 years, and as you look back and you try to figure out, what in the hell have I been about? Why did I do this? I hope the answer that you give is very straightforward. I've done what I've done because it's true. That simple. It's true. And that's what we need to say in the world in which we find ourselves. Namely, we're Christians because it's truth. And truth invades and pervades our lives. And the world is absolutely hungry for it, but afraid of it. So that's what we need to be about, a truthful people. Thank you, Stanley.
Thank you for this time together. We're now going to move uh, in order, as orderly as we can, to the next room. Thanks, everybody. All right, well, that about wraps it up. Um, what did you think about Stanley? Or do you have any final words uh, for our group on the Stanley weekend? We'll call it the Stanley weekend. No final words for the Stanley weekend, except for we should all be blessed to have uh, been a part of that. And uh, I just want to encourage everyone, don't miss out next time. Yeah, and I was profoundly impacted by the man's uh, commitment to Christ uh, the formation of his character as a Christian in a group of friends that she just heard. Understanding that there's, re- you know, he, he challenges us all to read. Okay, some of us, some of us need to learn how to read well, as opposed to just read. And he also talked to us uh, significantly about, um, you know, how to see oneself as a pastor. How to, uh, he cautioned us about success in pastor. I think all those lessons are fantastic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to this podcast at least two or three more times in the next month. I hope you will, too. Um, until then, until our next uh, podcast. Oh, by the way, just a reminder, if you want to study with people like, I mean, Stanley's not going to study again with us in the uh, uh, contextual theology seminars, but we just encourage you, if you're interested in the issue of church and mission and the theological issues that that, uh, that challenges us, to engage, come join us at the Doctor of Ministry in Contextual Theology. We'd love to have you. We're signing up our, our next cohort that starts in June of 2018 right now. Uh, contact me. Contact the admissions at Northern Seminary. Uh, just get a hold of us somehow. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, Dave, here's a newsflash. I know it took you a whole year to get used to our shabby surroundings when we left uh, the library, but this is our last podcast here in the studio. The next time we, no, no, no. The next time we broadcast, we're going to be in the Lyle Center. No, we're the new this Lyle Center. This means we're going to take two months off. Probably. No, we're not. We're going to be back here in Maybe. two weeks with another podcast. If you guys are lucky, we'll show up. But our once uh, host Claw gets back from all his fifty-two vacations, we'll have some bonus episodes over the summer. But the next season, this is the end of season two. When season three kicks off, we're going to be in our new digs. In the Come li- by and visit back in the every- library. Come in the corner. Oh, it's back in the library. It's going to be a beautiful library. We're going to have our own studio in that. Absolutely. Building. Our very own studio built into it from the ground up. We are really looking forward to it. Till then, folks, uh, thanks for being with us this whole year. Theology Mission Lecture, uh, sorry, podcast. Uh, <laughs> and we look forward to next year. Dave Bye-bye. Fitch, Jeff Olsglass, signing off. Bye-bye.